The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. It's been said that there are really only two stories in literature. A person goes on a journey and a stranger comes to town, which is actually just a person goes on a journey told from a different point of view. Kazuo Ishiguro's stripped-down short story, A Village After Dark, combines these two, preserving the essential mysteries of both. A man arrives in a village. He's known it before, years ago, when he spoke to the people and roused them to his cause. What was that cause? Who was that man? How will they treat him now? And what powers will he exert over them? And the youth who never knew him. What does any of this mean? What does it represent? How does it speak to us, if it does? We might live in a buzzing metropolis or on a lonely mountaintop retreat. We might be buried in some basement apartment or living alone in a thousand acres of forest, shirtless and howling. It doesn't matter. When we enter this world of this brief, short story, we're all in a village. We're all in a village, and darkness is descending. Kazuo Ishiguro and his short story, A Village After Dark, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. Another special quarantine edition. We'll have a great short story for you, as we've been doing on these Thursdays during the shutdown, the shutdown, the lockdown, whatever it's called. We are inside, looking out the windows at our spring as it fades into memory, a time for the earth to breathe. Have you seen those images? Our planet with less human activity, without smog, without so many cars flying around, things look kind of nice out there. It shames me to say it because I am a person and I love people. Guys, I really love people. I'm a person hugger, more than a tree hugger. But I do like nature. I like Mother Earth. And if there's one thing that works while we're indoors, in addition to fighting this god-awful virus, I mean, it's that Mother Earth gets to take a breath. She deserves it. She's been overrun with nasty children for so long now. The filthiest and nastiest little demons. You could imagine. She's been patient. It's time to let her sit down, kick up her feet, and relax into her chair. Maybe when this is all over, we can treat her better. It's nice seeing her like this, isn't it? Resting and recovering. Maybe we can govern ourselves in a less burdensome fashion. We don't need to run around throwing excrement on the walls all day long every single day, do we? Can't we sit quietly once in a while and draw little pictures? and speak in whispers, and maybe do some cleaning up after ourselves. Pretty long extended metaphor to kick things off here on the History of Literature today, but maybe I'm just previewing a special month we're planning, the month of June. Henry David Thoreau will be looking at him quite a bit. I was fortunate enough to go swimming in Walden Pond once upon a time, And being thus baptized, I feel ready to preach the holy word of Henry David himself. He wasn't born Henry David. Did you know that? His given name was David Henry. He switched it after college. Reminds me of my friend, 
who planned to rename herself in college. She wanted to go by the name Ariel when she got there, and in fact to shorten it to Ari. All the way on the plane from New York City, I'm Ari now, not the old me. This is a new me. I'm Ari. She lands at O'Hare as Ari. Here I am, the Ari of Illinois. Gets into the cab as Ari arrives on campus. Still Ari. Finds her dorm. Finds her dorm room. Meets her next-door neighbor, Ari Cohen, a guy. And so she dropped the plan then and there. I'm not the new Ari. (laughs) No fresh start. I'll stay who I always was. She has a great name, though. I haven't used it here because she might be listening. But I love her name. It suits her perfectly, and I wouldn't change a thing. I wonder if she would say the same. So David Henry Thoreau, known to us as Henry David Thoreau, or just Thoreau. We'll have some shows on him coming up. But while we're on the subject of fresh starts, that seems like a good place to talk about today's story. It's about fresh starts, or the attempt to get them. It's about seizing the day in one's youth, then trying to deal with the wreckage, but knowing you can recapture the power you once had. If you can, maybe you can, maybe you can't. It's like the dying embers of a fire or twilight at the end of a long summer day. Is there light there? Is there heat? Can the fire be rekindled? Will it return? It's a beautiful story, almost mystical. As you'll see, some of these questions have to go unanswered. We can speculate a little, but the story withholds meaning from us. It invites us to supply the meaning ourselves. It's been compared with Shirley Jackson's story, The Lottery, which we've covered here. I would say it's even less giving than that story, which, as you know, if you listen to our episode on it or otherwise have encountered it, has a big reveal that seems to supply some knowledge and understanding of what's happening in the story, but in some ways it only gives us a big question mark too, or a series of them, and we fill in all the color. It's like a drawing, an outline that we color inside. Ishiguro's story is like that too, except maybe the lines are more like dots on a page, some of them unconnected. We have to draw the lines ourselves before we even begin to color. So let's get out our finest pencils, Speaking of which, Thoreau was a great pencil maker. Did you know that? (laughs) He was. (laughs) Do you care? Does anyone care? Is anyone listening? (laughs) Thoreau was a pencil maker. We'll cover that. (laughs) And much more. Let's get out our finest pencils and colors and get to work. We'll have some emails from dear listeners, then a little about Ishiguro and his story, and then the story itself, all coming up after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans 
are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. First email came in a while ago as this blasted disease first started taking over the planet. Subject, hello from quarantined Tyrol. You know Tyrol, right? I've heard that also pronounced as Tyrol. I've heard it pronounced as Tyrol. It's an alpine region in Austria. Dear Jack, I have meant to write this mail for months, however, have never found time being one of those rats in the race. Now, with Tyrol as one of the corona hotspots and therefore in complete lockdown, I find time to do all those things you formerly put off till calmer times that so far have never come. So, hooray. Like every crisis, also this one has good things that come with it. I hope you and your family are well and that nothing, not even a pandemic, will prevent you from continuing with your podcast. Don't want to sound selfish, but this is really something that keeps me going in this homebound time. I've never been too keen on social media, podcasts, etc., yet was always on the lookout for something inspiring about language or literature. Nothing that really caught my interest for longer than a couple of episodes till I came across the history of literature. And now I am an addict. Hooked. Grumpy if I can't get my dose. There's a winking emoticon. Scherzo aparte. I really feel... I really very much appreciate your work, and a lot of work it must be to put such great episodes together. As I am a working single mother with aging parents, I don't have a lot of time that can be spent leisurely. But I try to get some exercise into my daily routine, so I started walking to school. Yes, I am a teacher, listening to your podcast. I get so absorbed that I never know how I did that 45-minute walk twice a week. Thank God it is mostly a promenade along a river. Saves me getting run over. (laughs) No more walking to work these days, but many jour fixes in my new routine. The best thing about this is that I have discovered the history of literature only recently. That means I have got so many episodes to look forward to. Also, my students are benefiting from your intense knowledge and the very approachable way of presenting it, especially now that all our schools are closed. They can pick and choose from episodes as they like. Thanks a lot for your great work. And stay healthy. All the best from around the globe. Claudia. Well, Claudia, thank you for the email. I love hearing from you and your alpine atmosphere walking along the river. Listening to the history of literature. And prescribing it to your students. (laughs) Many thanks. And I hope you stay healthy as well. Next email. Subject. 
your Facebook trucker is back. Hi, Jack. I finally remembered to Patreon. It's only a buck a month, but we can't be too sure what the future holds so far as our income. Familiar story, huh? I've mostly said what I need to say in the Facebook messages I sent to you, but I'll say it again. Thank you for putting yourself out there on the cyber waves. You really do make a difference in people's lives, not the least of which for me is that I've lined up Chekhov and Monroe stories for April listening. No luck finding Catherine Ann Porter stories on audio. On your next episode, please try not to make me cry again. Kim. P.S. Never mind. It's okay if I cry. It's a crying time out in the world right now, and literary catharsis is so much better than reality. Hmm. Kim. Oh, Kim, I am feeling your pain all the way across the country. It's a difficult time for everyone as the reality of our new world takes hold. Social distancing is not great for morale, is it? Not in the long term. I know we're keeping that virus at bay. I know it travels as we travel. But it's hard not to recall those days when we could jump on the train and ride to something glorious, a bookstore, a theater, a concert, a night on the town, dinner and drinks with friends, hugs and handshakes at the beginning, hugs and handshakes at the end. Those days will return, hopefully. For now, we're going to keep plowing our way through. Catharsis from literature will be our saving grace, hopefully. That's one place where we can turn. I'm not sure how many Facebook truckers we have in our audience. I'm very glad we have at least one. Thank you for the email, Kim. So, Kazuo Ishiguro was born in Nagasaki in 1954 and moved to the UK in 1960. He was five years old when they moved. He was 35 when he returned to Japan. The immigration story and the dual life he led gave him a strong sense of the other, of different perspectives. He was at home in the UK, but he had a very different perspective from those around him thanks to his Japanese family, who spoke Japanese at home. At the same time, although he was a Japanese citizen until he was almost 30, he was not fully Japanese either. He lived in England. He went to English schools. He speaks only terrible Japanese in his estimation and so on. I don't want to oversell this as determinative or even significant necessarily. It's not like it's such a wildly unusual situation. And I don't think it's fair to say Aha, because you are X, that means you wrote Y. But it helps to give us some orientation when we consider his work, especially the short story we're going to hear today, The Stranger Comes to Town. But there's more than just a man coming to town in this story. It's a town recovering from a kind of mass hysteria, a wave of thought, perhaps a religion or a cult. Maybe it's a labor organizer Maybe it's a white supremacist. Maybe it's a preacher of some sort, an agitator, a prophet. We are not told. We are deliberately not told. The point is not to analyze the merits of the mania. It's to talk about mass mania in general, what it does when it passes through a community, what it leaves behind, how it's viewed by the new generation, perhaps with some fascination, perhaps with some longing, to taste the seductive nectar and what it's like to be the mad prophet 
who can recall the feeling of power. The minds that were being formed can feel that inside him, ready to be summoned forth if necessary. It's about life and power and age and wariness. It's a beautiful, beautiful story, delicate and deep, kind of magical in its mysterious charms. Ishiguro's father was an oceanographer, kind of a big shot, it seems. He went to university, talking about Casbo now, went to university, studied English and philosophy, and eventually creative writing. His first novel, A Pale View of Hills, was published in 1982. Since then, he published slowly, one might say, but to great acclaim. Kind of the Saul Bellow model. A novel came out every four or five years or so, sometimes a little less sometimes a little more. A Pale View of Hills, An Artist of the Floating World, The Remains of the Day, which was also a very popular film, The Unconsoled, When We Were Orphans, Never Let Me Go, huge favorite here at the History of Literature podcast. I don't know how many guests have mentioned that. Big favorite with Mike's as well. The Buried Giant, Ishiguro has won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and he's been knighted and he's won all kinds of other prizes and accolades. He has also not been universally praised. Critic James Wood. (laughs) Good old James Wood. He famously wrote a review of The Unconsoled that said, quote, it invents its own category of badness, end quote. Kind of harsh. That book, which has something like 500 pages of stream of consciousness prose, also had its defenders, work of genius. He also wrote short stories, though some of them, like the one we're reading today, was originally a longer piece that was trimmed down. It has that quality. There's a sense of a larger story, much larger story, almost an epic that must come before and after. And what we're getting is just a moment in time. There's a lot we don't know. We can fill in blanks. But living with some mystery is part of the experience here. Part of our experience reading the story is to analyze ourselves as readers. What are our expectations? What do we do with our questions? And can we give ourselves over to mood and atmosphere and feeling, even if our thoughts are elsewhere? Our intellect is aroused, it's engaged, but it's not satisfied. Can we let ourselves feel our way through a story where the intellect or intellectual pursuits go unfulfilled? Let's find out. A Village After Dark by Kazuo Ishiguro. After this. After Dark by Kazuo Ishiguro There was a time when I could travel England for weeks on end and remain at my sharpest, when, if anything, the traveling gave me an edge. But now that I am older, I become disoriented more easily. 
So it was that on arriving at the village just after dark, I failed to find my bearings at all. I could hardly believe I was in the same village in which, not so long ago, I had lived and come to exercise such influence. There was nothing I recognized, and I found myself walking forever around twisting, badly lit streets, hemmed in on both sides by the little stone cottages characteristic of the area. The streets often became so narrow I could make no progress without my bag or my elbow scraping one rough wall or another. I persevered nevertheless, stumbling around in the darkness in the hope of coming upon the village square, where I could at least orient myself, or else of encountering one of the villagers. When after a while I had done neither, a weariness came over me, and I decided my best course was just to choose a cottage at random, knock on the door, and hope it would be opened by someone who remembered me. I stopped by a particularly rickety-looking door, whose upper beam was so low that I could see I would have to crouch right down to enter. A dim light was leaking out around the door's edges, and I could hear voices and laughter. I knocked loudly to ensure that the occupants would hear me over their talk. But just then, someone behind me said, Hello. I turned to find a young woman of around twenty, dressed in raggedy jeans and a torn jumper, standing in the darkness a little way away. You walked straight past me earlier, she said, even though I called to you. Did I really? Well, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be rude. You're Fletcher, aren't you? Yes, I said, somewhat flattered. Wendy thought it was you when you went by our cottage. We all got very excited. You were one of that lot, weren't you? With David Magus and all of them. Yes, I said, but Magus was hardly the most important one. I'm surprised you pick him out like that. There were other, far more important figures. I reeled off a series of names and was interested to see the girl nodding at each one in recognition. But this must have all been before your time, I said. I'm surprised you know about such things. It was before our time, but we're all experts on your lot. We know more about all that than most of the older ones who were here then. Wendy recognized you instantly just from your photos. I had no idea you young people had taken such an interest in us. I'm sorry I walked past you earlier. But you see, now that I'm older, I get a little disoriented when I travel. I could hear some boisterous talk coming from behind the door. I banged on it again, this time rather impatiently, though I was not so eager to bring the encounter with the girl to a close. She looked at me for a moment, then said, all of you from those days are like that. David Magus came here a few years ago, in 93, or maybe it was 94. He was like that, a bit vague. It must get to you after a while, traveling all the time. So Magus was here. How interesting. You know, he wasn't one of the really important figures. You mustn't get carried away with such an idea. Incidentally, perhaps you could tell me who lives in this cottage. I thumped the door again. The Petersons the girl said. They're an old house. They'll probably remember you. The Petersons, I repeated, but the name meant nothing to me. Why don't you come to our cottage? Wendy was really excited. So were the rest of us. It's a real chance for us, actually talking to someone from those days. I'd very much like to do that, but first of all, I'd better get myself settled in. The Petersons, you say? I thumped the door again, this time quite ferociously. At last it opened, throwing warmth and light out into the street. 
An old man was standing in the doorway. He looked at me carefully, then asked, It's not Fletcher, is it? Yes, and I've just got into the village. I've been traveling for several days. He thought about this for a moment, then said, Well, you'd better come in. I found myself in a cramped, untidy room full of rough wood and broken furniture. A log burning in the fireplace was the only source of light by which I could make out a number of hunched figures sitting around the room. The old man led me to a chair beside the fire with a grudgingness that suggested it was the very one he had just vacated. Once I sat down, I found I could not easily turn my head to see my surroundings or the others in the room. But the warmth of the fire was very welcome, and for a moment I just stared into its flames, a pleasant grogginess drifting over me. Voices came from behind me, inquiring if I was well, if I had come far, if I was hungry, and I replied as best I could, though I was aware that my answers were barely adequate. Eventually, the questions ceased, and it occurred to me that my presence was creating a heavy awkwardness, but I was so grateful for the warmth and the chance to rest that I hardly cared. Nonetheless, when the silence behind me had gone unbroken for several minutes, I resolved to address my hosts with a little more civility, and I turned in my chair. It was then, as I did so, that I was suddenly seized by an intense sense of recognition. I had chosen the cottage quite at random, but now I could see that it was none other than the very one in which I had spent my years in this village. My gaze moved immediately to the far corner, at this moment shrouded in darkness, to the spot that had been my corner, where once my mattress had been and where I had spent many tranquil hours browsing through books or conversing with whoever happened to drift in. On summer days, the windows and often the door were left open to allow a refreshing breeze to blow right through. Those were the days when the cottage was surrounded by open fields and there would come from outside the voices of my friends, lazing in the long grass, arguing over poetry or philosophy. These precious fragments of the past came back to me so powerfully that it was all I could do not to make straight for my old corner, then and there. Someone was speaking to me again, perhaps asking another question, but I hardly listened. Rising, I peered through the shadows into my corner and could now make out a narrow bed, covered by an old curtain, occupying more or less the exact space where my mattress had been. The bed looked extremely inviting, and I found myself cutting into something the old man was saying. Look, I said, I know this is a bit blunt, but you see, I've come such a long way today. I really need to lie down, close my eyes, even if it's just for a few minutes. After that, I'm happy to talk all you like. I could see the figures around the room shifting uneasily. Then a new voice said, rather sullenly, Go ahead then, have a nap. Don't mind us. But I was already picking my way through the clutter toward my corner. The bed felt damp, and the springs creaked under my weight, but no sooner had I curled up with my back to the room than my many hours of traveling began to catch up with me. As I was drifting off, I heard the old man saying, It's Fletcher, all right. God, he's aged. A woman's voice said, Should we let him go to sleep like that? He might wake in a few hours, and then we'll have to stay up with him. Let him sleep for an hour or so, someone else said. If he's still asleep after an hour, we'll wake him. At this point, sheer exhaustion overtook me. 
It was not a continuous or comfortable sleep. I drifted between sleep and waking, always conscious of voices behind me in the room. At some point, I was aware of a woman saying, I don't know how I was ever under his spell. He looks such a ragamuffin now. In my state of near sleep, I debated with myself whether these words applied to me, or perhaps to David Magus, but before long, sleep engulfed me once more. When I next awoke, the room appeared to have grown both darker and colder. Voices were continuing behind me in lowered tones, but I could make no sense of the conversation. I now felt embarrassed at having gone to sleep in the way I had, and for a few further moments remained motionless with my face to the wall. But something about me must have revealed that I was awake, for a woman's voice, breaking off from the general conversation, said, Oh, look, look. Some whispers were exchanged. Then I heard the sound of someone coming toward my corner. I felt a hand placed gently on my shoulder and looked up to find a woman kneeling over me. I did not turn my body sufficiently to see the room, but I got the impression that it was lit by dying embers and the woman's face was visible only in shadow. Now, Fletcher, she said, it's time we had a talk. I've waited a long time for you to come back. I've thought about you often. I strained to see her more clearly. She was somewhere in her forties, and even in the gloom I noticed a sleepy sadness in her eyes. But her face failed to stir in me even the faintest of memories. I'm sorry, I said. I have no recollection of you, but please forgive me if we met some time ago. I do get very disoriented these days. Fletcher, she said. When we used to know one another, I was young and beautiful. I idolized you, and everything you said seemed like an answer. Now here you are, back again. I've wanted to tell you for many years that you ruined my life. You're being unfair. All right, I was mistaken about a lot of things, but I never claimed to have any answers. All I said in those days was that it was our duty, all of us, to contribute to the debate. We knew so much more about the issues than the ordinary people here. If people like us procrastinated, claiming we didn't yet know enough, then who was there to act? But I never claimed I had the answers. No, you're being unfair. Fletcher she said, and her voice was oddly gentle. You used to make love to me, more or less every time I wandered in here to your room. In this corner, we did all kinds of beautifully dirty things. It's odd to think how I could have once been so physically excited by you, and here you're just a foul-smelling bundle of rags now. But look at me. I'm still attractive. My face has got a bit lined, but when I walk in the village streets, I wear dresses I've made specially to show off my figure. A lot of men want me still. But you, no woman would look at you now. A bundle of stinking rags and flesh. I don't remember you, I said, and I've no time for sex these days. I've other things to worry about, more serious things. Very well, I was mistaken about a lot in those days, but I've done more than most to try and make amends. You see, even now I'm traveling. I've never stopped. I've traveled and traveled, trying to undo what damage I may once have caused. That's more than can be said of some others from those days. I bet Magus, for instance, hasn't worked nearly as hard to try and put things right. The woman was stroking my hair. Look at you. I used to do this, run my fingers through your hair. Look at this filthy mess. I'm sure you're contaminated with all sorts of parasites. 
but she continued slowly to run her fingers through the dirty knots. I failed to feel anything erotic from this, as perhaps she wished me to do. Rather, her caresses felt maternal. Indeed, for a moment it was as though I had finally reached some cocoon of protectiveness, and I began once more to feel sleepy. But suddenly she stopped and slapped me hard on the forehead. Why don't you join the rest of us now? You've had your sleep. You've got a lot of explaining to do. With that, she got up and left. For the first time, I turned my body sufficiently to survey the room. I saw the woman making her way past the clutter on the floor, then sitting down in a rocking chair by the fireplace. I could see three other figures hunched around the dying fire. One I recognized to be the old man who had opened the door. The two others, sitting together on what looked like a wooden trunk, seemed to be women of around the same age as the one who had spoken to me. The old man noticed that I had turned, and he indicated to the others that I was watching. The four of them proceeded to sit stiffly, not speaking. From the way they did this, it was clear that they had been discussing me thoroughly while I was asleep. In fact, as I watched them, I could more or less guess the whole shape their conversation had taken. I could see, for instance, that they had spent some time expressing concern for the young girl I had met outside, and about the effect I might have on her peers. They're all so impressionable the old man would have said, and I heard her inviting him to visit them. To which, no doubt, one of the women on the trunk would have said, but he can't do much harm now. In our time, we were all taken in because all his kind, they were young and glamorous. But these days, the odd one passing through from time to time, looking all decrepit and burned out like that, if anything, it goes to demystify all that talk about the old days. In any case, people like him have changed their positions so much these days. They don't know themselves what they believe. The old man would have shaken his head. I saw the way that young girl was looking at him. All right, he looks a pitiful mess over there just now. But once his ego is fed a little, once he has the flattery of the young people, sees how they want to hear his ideas, then there'll be no stopping him. It'll be just like before. He'll have them all working for his causes. Young girls like that, there's no little for them to believe in now. Even a stinking tramp like this could give them a purpose. Their conversation, all the time I slept, would have gone something very much like that. But now, as I observed them from my corner, they continued to sit in guilty silence, staring at the last of their fire. After a while, I rose to my feet. Absurdly, the four of them kept their gazes averted from me. I waited a few moments to see if any of them would say anything. Finally, I said, All right, I was asleep earlier, but I've guessed what you were saying. Well, you'll be interested to know I'm going to do the very thing you feared. I'm going this moment to the young people's cottage. I'm going to tell them what to do with all their energy, all their dreams, their urge to achieve something of lasting good in this world. Look at you, what a pathetic bunch crouching in your cottage, afraid to do anything, afraid of me, of Magus, of anyone else from those times, afraid to do anything in the world out there, just because once we made a few mistakes. Well, those young people haven't yet sunk so low. Despite all the lethargy you've been preaching at them down the years, I'll talk to them. I'll undo in half an hour all your sorry efforts. You see, the old man said to the others, I knew it would be this way. We ought to stop him, but what can we do? I crashed my way across the room, picked up my bag, and went out into the night. 
The girl was standing outside when I emerged. She seemed to be expecting me, and with a nod began to lead the way. The night was drizzly and dark. We twisted and turned along the narrow paths that ran between the cottages. Some of the cottages we passed looked so decayed and crumbling that I felt I could destroy one of them simply by running at it with all my weight. The girl kept a few paces ahead, occasionally glancing back at me over her shoulder. Once she said, Wendy's going to be so pleased. She was sure it was you when you went past earlier. By now she'll have guessed she was right, because I've been away this long and she'll have brought the whole crowd together. They'll all be waiting. Did you give David Magus this sort of reception too? Oh yes, we were really excited when he came. I'm sure he found that very gratifying. He always had an exaggerated sense of his own importance. Wendy says Magus was one of the interesting ones, but that you were, well, important. She thinks you were really important. I thought about this for a moment. You know, I said, I've changed my mind on very many things. If Wendy's expecting me to say all the things I used to all those years ago, well, she's going to be in for a disappointment. The girl did not seem to hear this, but continued to lead me purposefully through the clusters of cottages. After a little while, I became aware of footsteps following a dozen or so paces behind us. But first, I assumed this was just some villager out walking and refrained from turning round. But then the girl halted under a street lamp and looked behind us. I was thus obliged also to stop and turn. A middle-aged man in a dark overcoat was coming toward us. As he approached, he held out his hand and shook mine, though without smiling. So, he said, you're here. I then realized I knew the man. We had not seen each other since we were ten years old. His name was Roger Button, and he had been in my class at the school I had attended for two years in Canada before my family returned to England. Roger Button and I had not been especially close, but because he had been a timid boy, and because he too was from England, he had for a while followed me about. I had neither seen nor heard from him since that time. Now, as I studied his appearance under the street lamp, I saw the years had not been kind to him. He was bald, his face was pocked and lined, and there was a weary sag to his whole posture. For all that, there was no mistaking my old classmate. Roger, I said, I'm just on my way to visit this young lady's friends. They've gathered together to receive me. Otherwise, I'd have come and looked you up straight away. As it was, I had it in my mind as the next thing to do, even before getting any sleep tonight. I was just thinking to myself, However late things finish at the young people's cottage, I'll go and knock on Roger's door afterward. Don't worry, said Roger Button as we all started to walk again. I know how busy you are, but we ought to talk. Chew over old times. When you last saw me, at school I mean, I suppose I was a rather feeble specimen. But you know, all that changed when I got to fourteen, fifteen. I really toughened up. Became quite a leader type. But you'd long since left Canada. I always wondered what would have happened if we'd come across each other at fifteen. Things would have been rather different between us, I assure you. As he said this, memories came flooding back. In those days, Roger Button had idolized me, and in return I had bullied him incessantly. However, there had existed between us a curious understanding that my bullying him was all for his own good. And when, without warning, I suddenly punched him in the stomach on the playground, or when... Passing him in the corridor, I impulsively wrenched his arm up his back until he started to cry. 
I was doing so in order to help him toughen up. Accordingly, the principal effect such attacks had on our relationship was to keep him in awe of me. This all came back to me as I listened to the weary-looking man walking beside me. Of course, Roger Button went on, perhaps guessing my train of thought, it might well be that if you hadn't treated me the way you did, I'd never have become what I did at fifteen. In any case, I've often wondered how it would have been if we'd met just a few years later. I really was something to be reckoned with by then. We were once again walking along the narrow, twisted passages between cottages. The girl was still leading the way, but she was now walking much faster. Often we would only just manage to catch a glimpse of her turning some corner ahead of us, and it struck me that we would have to keep alert if we were not to lose her. Today, of course, Roger Button was saying, I've let myself go a bit, but I have to say, old fellow, you seem to be in much worse shape. Compared with you, I'm an athlete. Not to put too fine a point on it, you're just a filthy old tramp now, really, aren't you? But you know, for a long time after you left, I continued to idolize you. Would Fletcher do this? What would Fletcher think if he saw me doing that? Oh, yes, it was only when I got to fifteen or so that I looked back on it all and saw through you. Then I was very angry, of course. Even now, I still think about it sometimes. I look back and think, well, he was just a thoroughly nasty so-and-so. He had a little more weight and muscle at that age than I did, a little more confidence, and he took full advantage. Yes, it's very clear, looking back, what a nasty little person you were. Of course, I'm not implying you still are today. We all change. That much I'm willing to accept. Have you been living here long? I asked, wishing to change the subject. Oh, seven years or so. Of course, they talk about you a lot around here. I sometimes tell them about our early association. But he won't remember me, I always tell them. Why would he remember a skinny little boy he used to bully and have at his beck and call? Anyway, the young people here, they talk about you more and more these days. Certainly, the ones who've never seen you tend to idealize you the most. I suppose you've come back to capitalize on all that. Still, I shouldn't blame you. You're entitled to try and salvage a little self-respect. We suddenly found ourselves facing an open field, and we both halted. Glancing back, I saw that we had walked our way out of the village. The last of the cottages were some distance behind us. Just as I had feared, we had lost the young woman. In fact, I realized we had not been following her for some time. At that moment, the moon emerged, and I saw we were standing at the edge of a vast, grassy field, extending, I supposed, far beyond what I could see by the moon. Roger Button turned to me. His face in the moonlight seemed gentle, almost affectionate. Still, he said, it's time to forgive. You shouldn't keep worrying so much. As you see, certain things from the past will come back to you in the end. But then we can't be held accountable for what we did when we were very young. No doubt you're right, I said. Then I turned and looked around in the darkness. But now I'm not sure where to go. You see, there were some young people waiting for me in their cottage. By now they'd have a warm fire ready for me and some hot tea and some home-baked cakes, perhaps even a good stew. And the moment I entered, ushered in by that young lady we were following just now, they'd all have burst into applause. There'd be smiling, adoring faces all around me. That's what's waiting for me somewhere, except I'm not sure where I should go. Roger Button shrugged. Don't worry, you'll get there easily enough, except, you know, that girl was being a little misleading if she implied you could walk to Wendy's cottage. 
It's much too far. You'd really need to catch a bus. Even then, it's quite a long journey. About two hours, I'd say. But don't worry. I'll show you where you can pick up your bus. With that, he began to walk back toward the cottages. As I followed, I could sense that the hour had got very late, and my companion was anxious to get some sleep. We spent several minutes walking around the cottages again, and then he brought us out into the village square. In fact, it was so small and shabby, it hardly merited being called a square. It was little more than a patch of green beside a solitary street lamp. Just visible beyond the pool of light cast by the lamp were a few shops, all shut up for the night. There was complete silence, and nothing was stirring. A light mist was hovering over the ground. Roger Button stopped before we had reached the green and pointed. There, he said, if you stand there, a bus will come along. As I say, it's not a short journey, about two hours, but don't worry. I'm sure your young people will wait. They have so little else to believe in these days, you see. It's very late, I said. Are you sure a bus will come? Oh, yes, of course, you may have to wait, but eventually a bus will come. Then he touched me reassuringly on the shoulder. I can see it might get a little lonely standing out here, but once the bus arrives, your spirits will rise, believe me. Oh, yes, that bus is always a joy. It'll be brightly lit up, and it's always full of cheerful people, laughing and joking and pointing out the window. Once you board it, you'll feel warm and comfortable, and the other passengers will chat with you, perhaps offer you things to eat or drink. There may even be singing. That depends on the driver. Some drivers encourage it, others don't. Well, Fletcher, it was good to see you. We shook hands. Then he turned and walked away. I watched him disappear into the darkness between two cottages. I walked up to the green and put my bag down at the foot of the lamppost. I listened for the sound of a vehicle in the distance, but the night was utterly still. Nevertheless, I had been cheered by Roger Button's description of the bus. Moreover, I thought of the reception awaiting me at my journey's end, of the adoring faces of the young people, and felt the stirrings of optimism somewhere deep within me. That's going to do it for this bonus episode of the History of Literature. Thank you for joining me, as always. I hope you find your ray of hope, your stirrings of optimism, your moment of repose, even as night sets and we turn to the stars to guide us. It's a beautiful world out there, crackling with thoughts and ideas and love and hope. Let's stay safe. Let's stay smart. But let's stay ready ready for this quarantine to lift, ready to go out and be our best selves. Our intellect is powerful, maddeningly so sometimes, but our emotional life needs to be involved here too. They need a seat at the table. <laughs> we can do better. And we will. I hope. We've got some good episodes coming up soon. Borges is around the corner. I know you've been waiting for that. Maybe a little John Cheever. What a fantastic writer he is. Some Alice Munro's on the calendar. Baldwin and Faulkner. Big three-parter. And Henry David Thoreau, which might be a four-parter. Great writers to take us from spring into late spring and maybe into summer. It's a season for books, a season for connections, 
a season for living, a season for life. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.